Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hey everyone, on today's podcast I'm joined by Dan DeUva, currently the broadcaster for the Las Vegas Golden Knights. Our friendship goes back to when we were in Syracuse together with the Crunch. We went to the Calder Cup Finals, and from that point forward we stayed in touch. And a lot of fun having Dan on because he's a broadcaster. We all know they can talk forever, and they're really good at it. So it gets heavy at times. We talk about the tragedy in Las Vegas and how that affected their team on their way to the Stanley Cup Final, among other things. So it's a great interview. Have fun. Enjoy it. Dan DeUva, the Sicilian Soundbite. I'm just thrilled that you're willing to join me for a little bit here. How are things going? Well, great. It's uh, it's wonderful that I can speak with the man who created the title, Sicilian Soundbite, because that is the one thing I'm asked about more than any other topic in Las Vegas. Who and how did you come up with Sicilian Soundbite? And if I recall correctly, you bestowed that title on me without even actually confirming that I was, in fact, part Sicilian. Completely unbeknownst. <laughs> and I... I fear that it could have been a, an, a terrible faux pas because had you been, I don't know, Northern Italian or Croatian, well, lucky or, you for know, you, it could have been any variation. My, my father's <laughs> mother was Sicilian. So, yes. And as a matter of fact, my, my brother, who was married in May, he and uh, his wife took their honeymoon to Sicily. Wow. And so he's, uh, he's also uh, Sicilian, but... Uh, not the sound bite portion can he, of things. Can he grow a beard as fast as you can? Not as fast as me, no. And he doesn't sound like me either. I mean, you've... Far better athlete than me. You probably had... I'm guessing 5 o'clock shadow was coming in by middle school for sure. <laughs> I think that's right. Yeah, I have been this tall and this thick at growing a beard since fifth grade. That's right. That's, that's par for the course, right? <laughs> I was a good athlete back then. At least I like to remember that. And I plateaued entirely well, in fifth grade. <laughs> Well, let the folks know, where did you grow up? Where were you such sure. a great athlete? Well, you know, I, I grew up in a town called Nutley, New Jersey, which is just a couple of towns over from East Rutherford, New Jersey. And so when the New Jersey Devils brought a certain goaltender on board named Martin Brodeur. Never heard of him. I had just uh, kind of gotten into the sport. And, um, you know, my dad had played baseball in college, and I loved the Mets. Uh, my family's had New York Jets tickets since the 70s. So I love going to the Jets and watching them lose week in and week out. But finally, uh, the Devils got good. I remember them losing to the Rangers in the Eastern Conference Finals. Was that Stephon the Mateau. infamous wraparound? Yes. You know what's interesting? I just read an article because Marty Brodeur's going into the Hall of Fame here. Oh, yeah. He actually mentioned that as one of the turning points of his career and one of his most memorable memorable games in a good way. Because you learn from your mistakes, you move yeah. on, it may set them up for the stage the next year. Sure, so. and that was it. Yeah. You know, it was a lockout shortened season in, in 95, and, of course, the Devils having 
um, you know, fallen not only in the Eastern Conference Finals, but the Devils have always been second fiddle to the Rangers, and in New York, almost third fiddle oh, when you consider sad. the Islanders. It's a big market. Yeah, yeah there's and a the, lot and going and on. And here. at that point, it was only about ten years since the Islanders' great run. Though I was, uh, that was before my time. As far as I was concerned, most of my friends were Rangers fans. You know, to be a Devils fan was so. Like, even why? in Jersey, they were Rangers fans. Oh yeah, sure. And my dad okay. had grown up a Rangers fan. Um, you know, the Devils didn't come around until 82, so this is only 12 years into their existence. I suppose it would, take really a, good. it would take a bit of time to establish enough market that already yeah, has a foothold, right? Sure. Yeah. You know, I mean, Madison Square Garden and just everything about New York City was the allure. And, and in the same way that the Jets are always second to the Giants and the Mets are always second to the Yankees, the Devils will always be second to the Rangers. But that doesn't mean they couldn't have a real solid following. And, um, you know, you had... A terrific organization with Lou Lamarillo at the head, a uh, great coach in Jacques Lemaire, a uh, great goaltender in Marty Brodeur. And Look at that roster. Some of the players. Captain Scott Stevens. Scott and, Niedermeyer you know, on down the list. And All those you players. You have your Stefan Richet and your Claude Lemieux. And I could go, you know, Bruce Driver. I could go on and on. Randy McKay. and Mike what, Peluso. Sure. I mean, just I remember that team about as well as I remember last year's Golden Knights. Uh, but but that was really special to be there, to be a little kid. I mean, if you're 8, 9, 10 years old and your favorite team is competing for a championship on that stage, that was incredible. So the answer to your question is Nutley, New Jersey in the mid-90s, being a Devils fan and then getting to be in the midst of that celebration, getting to meet the players um, and, and t- touch the Stanley Cup after they won all the celebration thereafter. And uh, to go to South Mountain Arena in West Orange, where the team had its practice facility, years later broadcasting uh, high school hockey games in that arena, South Mountain Arena. Um, and my family had moved. We ended up in Ridgewood, New Jersey, in Bergen County, just uh, about 10 minutes north of Nutley. My daughter would love that because of trolls. You know, oh. the Bergens are coming. The Bergens are coming. She'd be all over this. There you she'd, go. Be, she'd listen to this entire podcast, and she'd probably pick up on one word, and she'd go, the Bergens are coming. <laughs> That would be her highlight. So in, in 99, my freshman year of high school, my, my buddy and I had begun broadcasting sports, the Ridgewood Maroons on RHS TV Sports. And we created our own uh, cable access broadcasting situation. And we had done football. And, uh, and after football season, we wanted to do hockey. And our high school's hockey program was relatively new. Uh, and we wanted to convince everybody that we knew what we were doing. So we'd, <laughs> we'd go to the Meadowlands with a tape recorder and make practice play-by-play tapes in October and November, getting ready for high school hockey season in December. And we'd go up to... Were you amongst the general public when you were doing this? Oh, yeah, sure. Were you just wearing put... suits? No. <laughs> that would have real... And maybe even a fedora. No. To just try to prove how professional you were, right? It was not too hard to just get into the Meadowlands and grab a seat up in the rafters. Uh, I mean, you, you might have been able to fake a press pass and gone wherever you want. <laughs> I mean, you know that's a little known secret now about what we do, that if you wear a suit anywhere and you act like you know what you're doing, it's amazing where you can go. That's true, especially back then. But uh, as a precocious and ambitious 14-year-old, all I wanted to do was get in the building and do some play-by-play. But then the second thing I wanted to do was to meet the broadcasters. So that meant Mike Emmerich and Chico oh, Resch on TV. I just saw Chico yesterday, right. one of the best men He's in the game. Awesome. Doc, the same way. I mean, yeah. you think about Doc Emmerich, and as a player, and that's how I've known him, he's such a gracious man to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But you know why he's so good at what he does? Because he's so passionate about it. He truly cares about the players in the game, and he finds enjoyment in us. He loves to come in the room and sit down and learn your story, learn about your family, your interests. Yeah. And it comes across in his broadcast. Oh, for sure. To meet him at the young age like that, it must have left left quite an impression on you. Oh, my goodness. And and to think, I'm at that stage 14 years old, and this is just a few years after they had won the Cup in 95. And not only is he doing the Devils games locally, but he's also doing the Stanley Cup playoffs at the time on Fox. So I'll never forget hearing him say, the championship to New Jersey, the Devils win the Stanley Cup. And then in 99, 2000, you know, that was another Stanley Cup run for the Devils. And that was my freshman year of high school. So just to meet uh, Doc and Chico was neat. And also the radio broadcasters, Mike Miller and Randy, Randy Velashek. And, uh, and I loved listening to the games on the radio. Uh, almost as much as I enjoyed Doc on TV. But also to think of the New York broadcasters, I mean, Howie Rose doing the Islanders on TV, Sam Rosen doing the Rangers Stan Fischler involved. Stan Fischler. has been around you know, since I mean, Marv Albert 40s. Kenny Albert. Maybe. I mean, yeah, yeah, right. I mean, these, <laughs> these Sorry, guys. Sorry, Stan. <laughs> yeah, no, Stan's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, and, and wishing him the very best. We've missed seeing him as often as we uh, had before. But, yeah, I mean, you just had some great broadcasters and particularly in hockey so I was spoiled uh, and then to broadcast my high school's hockey games that year uh, wasn't it something that I think it was our second game Ridgewood was playing West Essex High School and uh, there was a kid on the team whose last name was Fatoric Casey Fatoric dad Robbie Fatoric there's not that many Fatorics right, out was there. the Dad, of course, and at the time, head coach of the New Jersey Devils, in attendance for this game. So our second intermission interview was with Robbie Fatorik, head coach of the New Jersey Devils. Did you ambush him? Oh, we, we planned it out before the game. We introduced ourselves. We were very professional, and, and he was terrific. Uh, unfortunately for Robbie, a few months later, the Devils let him go and won the Stanley Cup anyhow. Uh, but, but we got to Was have, that the year that he threw a bench on the ice or something? I think it was different. He, he had a big blow-up one he of those. He sure did, yeah, yeah. yeah I, remember I mean, that, that. that wasn't just him. I mean, that, coaches used to throw all kinds of <laughs> oh, inanimate objects on the ice. a lot more wild back then. I mean, yeah. water bottles, you can get those things yeah. clear across the ice. Sticks, oh. benches, you name it. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, now they're not going to – you haven't seen a frisbeed <laughs> iPad yet, but that might be the ultimate. If one of those goes across the ice, you know true. that there's some discontent on the bench. <laughs> Waiting for that. I'll, I'll be prepared. That's a good call. That's next. Uh, but, you know, it was just such a special time um, for, for sports in New York and, you know, particularly with the Devils uh, for me. So uh, that's sort of the the, uh, the long version of the story, I guess, that – the New Jersey Nets, um, you know, I was not so much a basketball fan, but I was a fan of their announcer, Ian Eagle. And uh, they, they created the Yes Network for the Yankees, but they also carried the Nets games. And I had worked as a runner for the Yes Network starting with, uh, I guess, the summer before my senior year of high school. So two broadcasters who influenced me more than any others personally were Mike Emmerich and Ian Eagle. And to this day, uh, they uh, remain uh, among my closest mentors uh, though it has been, boy, 18, 19 years. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you, <laughs> were, that. you were really predete- predetermined to do this. And oh, obviously, yeah. you carried on through your studies and directly went into sure. this line of work. And you, you mentioned, something, mentioned something earlier, though, about, and we briefly discussed it, how it took a little bit for the Devils to find their niche, to find a foothold in that area. And now with the Golden Knights, it's a very different dynamic, right? Because mm-hmm. there hasn't been 
a top-level professional sport in that city. And I played there in the ECHL with the Wranglers, and we had an amazing fan base. We did really well. We had a great time playing at the Orleans Arena. Loved being there. But they hadn't had that top level yet. And I know that the nervousness around the city and people I knew that lived there was that, will this city truly embrace this team? And then last year happened. The team comes out buzzing, hot as can be. They never lost momentum, and it went from a ticket that people weren't sure they wanted to go 41 times a year to a ticket that they couldn't get couldn't hang on to you know if you had to get rid of it it was gone in five minutes at five times the value i mean what what was that like to be around last year what's amazing is how the the fans have not just come out in numbers i figured the numbers would be there the passion right because the the curiosity would be major league team in vegas for the first time and if it were local folks i mean over two million people live in las vegas people don't realize how large the population is now Uh, and, and there would be a great deal of local folks You'd also have businesses to buy blocks of tickets or suites, and notably the casinos would be involved. The people from out of town would want to come and see a game, and there would be plenty of that. So the numbers, I had no doubt, would be there. And the arena, T-Mobile Arena, seats just under 17,400. We're talking about fixed seating capacity. It's turned out that they have well over 1,000 standing room at pretty much every game. So the crowds are routinely 18,200, 18,300. And then in the Stanley Cup Finals, you're talking 18,700, 18,800. I mean, it off the charts. I and mean, we're talking 1,000 over capacity. So that the numbers didn't surprise me at first. But as you said, the, the passion, the buzz in the building, it never wavers. There's no lull. Um, it, it's what you would dream a hockey environment might be like. And uh, I've never seen hockey in Europe, but I've heard about players who've gone from North America and have tried the European style. And the arenas aren't nearly as large, but the fans are relentless with uh, with the energy. So I often describe last year's Golden Knights crowds as um, like soccer matches because there were a lot of visiting fans who'd come from, say, Edmonton or Chicago, and they'd create some noise. But the Golden Knights fans were not allowed, about to let visiting fans take over their building, so they would have this incredible pushback. So the, the the buzz never relented, and as the team kept on winning and the attraction grew, it was harder and harder to get a ticket, and people became more passionate about the team. Well, it had to be so cool to see that happen firsthand, but you look at how that's evolved in that city now, and for somebody who hasn't been to Vegas since the team's been there, do you drive around and see Golden Knights stickers Everywhere. on cars? Do you see the pennants and the flags? It's Mike, so you it's, can't go anywhere. And, and someone it's, just it's asked true. Me this, the city's truly caught the fever. Oh, for sure. And, and, and you know, the, the joke, of course, was that there was the Vegas flu. I call it Golden Knights fever. Well, we knew we knew, we won eighteen straight for the Wranglers one year. I'll tell you a story on that after this one. I got I got a good one related to that. You know, it's sure. I mean, did, did some teams come in and have a good time while they were in Las Vegas? I, I bet they did, but. They're also professionals, and a, a lot of that, I mean, some teams I know had scheduled events, but after the game, you know, they were staying in Vegas an extra day. So uh, it was unfair to say that Knights were having as much success as they were because of the quote-unquote Vegas flu, but most notably that the the fans caught Golden Knights fever. It was Major League Sports in a city that had had UNLV basketball minor league sports with the Thunder, with the Wranglers, with the 51s baseball team. 
you know, you, you've had big fights, right? But that's a one-off event. You're talking about a hockey team that's going to play 41 regular season games and maybe another dozen playoff games. You know, that's part of a community. And, and it's something that the city has not had, especially since the population has grown to the extent that it has now, to bond the people together. It's not an old-fashioned East Coast city that I'm used to growing up where there, you could walk everywhere. You know, it's a lot of planned communities and strip malls. So it's not the natural walking neighborhoods that I'm accustomed to. So what is going to bond people together? And when you see in the driveway next to you, there's a car parked with a Golden Knights sticker. And maybe you see a Golden Knights flag in the window. And you see somebody walking out of the, the house with a Golden Knights sweatshirt. Hey, our neighbors who we've never met, they're Golden Knights fans too. Hey, let's go watch the game with them. They got to be good people. When you're, yeah. Yeah. When I mean, you're online it, at the supermarket, it's, it's everywhere. It's absolutely everywhere. Oh, and it's, it's amazing how that can happen. Yeah. And I, I hesitate when I say this because I love to play in Canadian markets where the fan base is knowledgeable and passionate and they can be very loud for sure. Um, but it's, it's almost a measured loud. It can be You're a right. little bit different than yeah. a truly raucous setting. Yeah. I describe and, it, Mike, sometimes as a Canadian fan is almost looking down his nose at the game. And that might be a little bit too critical, but that's sometimes how I feel because expectations are so high. In Vegas, there were no expectations. They just wanted to go see a team wear their city's logo and compete on a national or even international stage. And that's what they got. And it's it's clearly gotten hold now because like I say I still have friends that live in that area and they oh, can't yeah. get over it it's they they have defied expectation gone well beyond and I'm overjoyed because I love my time in Vegas and yeah. there's so many good people there and and people forget too that that's a real city it's not just yeah. the strip you know you oh, talk about right. it being planned communities and they are there's more park space per capita there than just about anywhere in the U.S., you know. So there, there really is a sense of family and real life in Las yeah. Vegas beyond the Strip. And um, people are just now kind of starting to get that that notice of it, right. you know. And this has helped do that, I think, a little and, bit. And I should also say, Mike, that the, the people in Las Vegas have an appreciation for hockey. A lot of people do know the game. Um, there was a suspicion that, well, you know, it's going to take folks time to know how to watch a game and how to follow along well number one the the las vegas thunder and the las vegas wranglers and the ihl and the echl proved that not only were there hockey fans there but people knew the game and people learned the game because of those teams over the years and secondly there are plenty of transplants people who've moved from all over the country whether uh, from Los Angeles, maybe people who are Kings fans have now switched over to the Golden Knights, especially with the Golden Knights beating the Kings uh, in uh, the playoffs last year, winning the division against the Kings last year. But whether it's from Chicago or New York, there are transplants from all over. And thirdly, this isn't the 1950s with the Dodgers and the Giants moving across the country. Sports is international, and you can just as easily watch hockey highlights on your phone uh, right now, um, whereas, you know, decades ago when there were six teams, I mean, you wouldn't get to see hockey on TV almost at all if you were living in Las Vegas. Can you imagine how different that was? So th there's plenty of exposure, and the, the access to information is now there. So th there's no reason why. And Max Pacioretty, I think, said this really well when he was introduced with the team at the beginning of the season. He said, this city fell in love with the team. And then they fell in love with the sport. 
it was more about civic pride. It wasn't learning the game. I mean, if that did come, but it was much more about civic pride. And because of the way the team was constructed, misfits, right? Golden misfits was the tag that they, they applied to themselves. But because of the character of people that were brought in, and we're talking Bill Foley is the owner, George McPhee is the GM, Gerard Gallant is the head coach, they brought in some really great people. They didn't just find talented players, they found really good human beings. And then when the October 1st shooting happens, so many people look to their professional sports team as a way to heal. The Golden Knights hadn't even played a regular season game yet, but the people that were on the team and in the front office knew how to handle that situation and help that community come together and help them heal. And that was really what I think um, helped that bond really seal. Well, and there's some things that really tie into this, too. You look at Derek England, who played for the Wranglers and ended oh, yeah. up making Las Vegas his home. And the way he handled that situation, I mean, those unfortunate, tragic events, he did it better than anybody could ever imagine. Yeah. The team rallied around those events around the city, around what he said, all of those things. And going back on it here, people don't always know there have been professional hockey players from Las Vegas. Oh, there's yeah. there's players in college. There was that known hockey sense and known hockey community. It existed there and has existed for a long time. And people are just now finding out about it. It's this unknown secret, or it was this big secret that no one knew about. Yeah. And... Uh, you're seeing that throughout the U.S. though now. I mean, Austin Matthews, where is he from? Phoenix, Arizona. And there's players from Dallas. There's players from Florida. There's piles of players from California and St. Louis, which when I first came into pro hockey, that was unheard of. We hadn't had a player in the NHL from St. Louis yet, period. We'd had a couple draft picks. And we're closing in on, I don't even know, two dozen players in the NHL wow. at this point. California, through the roof. It is an international game. It is a North American game. It is still a Canadian game at its core, and we're very thankful to our northern neighbors for it. <laughs> and like I say, I, I love spending time in Canada amongst people who know the game so well, but I also really enjoy the the unbridled enthusiasm of someone who's just found the game mm -hmm. and learned the game, yeah. and it's this new shiny toy that they're yeah. enamored with, and that's how... My grandpa was like that in the 50s. You know, yeah. he started hockey in St. Louis with a dozen other guys. Yeah. And that's where it comes from. And, you know, two generations later, look what's going on. Yeah. I, I say to uh, to folks in Las Vegas, and I mentioned earlier having grown up in Jersey where hockey wasn't new, but the Devils were relatively new and success was, was new. But as a kid, to go see the team in person practice at South Mountain Arena... And I had this conversation with Paul Stastny, whose dad played for the Devils in the early 90s, had left by the time they won the Stanley Cup. But it's more than likely that Paul Stastny and I were at the same rink at the same time, you know, in the early 90s when we were, you know, we're the same age. So we would have been, you know, seven years old or something like that. Uh, and I was just a few towns away from West Orange. Anyway, the, the thinking that as a kid, to be at those practices, to see those players, to look up to these guys in this team and how special that was and how life-shaping that experience ends up being. Now, to be at the team's practice facility in Vegas and to see the families, to see the kids, the overflow crowds at practice. We're talking about practice, Mike. That these kids... <laughs> yes, Mr. Iverson. <laughs> these, these kids uh, are, are experiencing this and they're becoming 
fans for life. How many of them go on to A, play hockey at, at whatever level, whether they play till they're 10 years old or 40 years old, or maybe if they, they aren't gifted athletically, maybe they turn into broadcasters or, or whatever else in, in the business. And that's what I think of what it meant to go to those practices and those games with my dad when I was a kid. And I know, I know you've had that experience. Very same experience. Your dad yeah. and your grandfather as well. And, and what it will be like, you know, for those kids who are now going to be hockey fans and and what hockey will look like. I'm sure more rinks will be constructed in Las Vegas. Right now there aren't too many, uh, but there will be more and more kids will play and uh, more games will be played and and how the sport will grow there. It's just so exciting to think about. We're only in year two of the team, but uh, you can't help but go through your own experience and now look back and, boy, Gee, that was that was 20, 25 years ago. I wonder where it's going to be now, 25 years from where we are. And in the Vegas flu is still going. <laughs> it's amazing how contagious, contagious. it is out there. Yeah. So I'm going to tell you the story I got on this one, all right? Yeah. We had a deal when we played at the Orleans Arena that all the ticket stubs that were sold or unsold, on the, on the back of them had a coupon for a free drink at the Mardi Gras bar, I believe it was, in the Orleans. And... All the tickets that weren't sold were collected <laughs> by our mascot, the Duke. Uh, and the Duke was mischievous. Oh. And he was also doing a hell of a mascot. The guy was unbelievable. Wow. I mean, he took dancing lessons. He made outfits. <laughs> this guy was top notch. Um, he'd take that packet of tickets and he'd give half of them to us. And he'd give the other half directly to the visiting team. And they'd be sitting right in the trainer's room when they showed up. We won about 18 straight at the end of that year, and <laughs> it got around the league, and everybody that ever went to Vegas knew that those tickets and those uh, those free drink coupons were there. And Especially but, and, for oh, ECHL man. guys. It's different for an ECHL oh, guy in that salary compared to a guy in the NHL these 10 years plus later. Oh, I mean, we're making 500 550 a week out there. Yeah, $550, not $550,000. That's correct. <laughs> and, you know, and and caveat to that, housing's paid for, you have pretty sure. on the road. We're very, you know, minor league hockey's a good deal. A lot oh, different than minor league baseball. No, da- Oh, no doubt about it. That's another conversation. That's, You're right. You got it. But, but certainly but, compared to the NHL players of 2018 who are making millions upon millions, it's right. a little bit different. So we'd take those coupons, you know, and we'd, We'd have a great time in the place, and then yeah. we'd hop in a cab, and we'd be on the list somewhere because we had a player that greased every bouncer he met in town the first week he was there. Yeah. And this guy went to every place he could find. I'll get you tickets. I'll get you in. I'll get you in. And we're getting him into a double-A-level hockey game, ECHL, but you know what? These guys <laughs> ate it up, right? And it's a city where people take care of one another, yeah. and you grease uh-huh. the right people. So we're on we're on the list at these clubs at, at the win at you name it and we're hardly making any money right <laughs> but we're on the list and you know how we had so much fun out there too though is because we had such great connections in town we had blue man group as a big sponsor they'd come and do the anthem I, i'm friends with a blue man his name's mark i won't yeah. mention his last name but he, I'm he's friends, blue he's blue and i'm friends <laughs> with a blue man and it turned out he's from st louis oh. um you know, Carrot Top used to work out at the fitness place we worked oh, out sure. at. Massive upper body, tiny legs, loves basketball. Pete Rose would be riding the stationary bike there. What else? I mean, Cirque du Soleil, that was one of our biggest ones. If you had family coming into town and you gave a week notice and you need six tickets for Cirque, there you go, eighth row. Go have fun. Go see Mystere. Yeah. Unbelievable. And I'm sh- I 
I bet your guys are having similar connections out there, right? Yeah, now. Well, I, 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 I can assume that they are. I know that I am. <laughs> oh, Dan, we got to get on this yeah, for you. This is this yeah. is disappointing. Well, you, you know, there there definitely have been some good good people to meet who've taken good care of me. I'm always looking for more. Uh, no, and I tell you that for me as a broadcaster. I, I, I'll offer a quick shout out to the folks at the National Public Radio affiliate KNPR, and uh, I am an NPR listener. Uh, and and thank I'm, you NPR. Yeah, and 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 as a member of a few stations, having been uh, as a student, uh, WFUV in, in New York and and WAER in Syracuse, and now KNPR in Las Vegas, uh, I, I've met some incredible people just through KNPR events that they've asked me to MC, and that's what's fun to go uh, when a, a group or whether it's a charity or whatever it is, uh, they invite you to come and speak and be an MC or host a show. And you meet so many people that way. And it's a lot of different groups. Um, they're all different, it seems. And a lot of different places that I didn't know were there. A lot of folks whose backgrounds I had no idea. And that's what's neat for me. Uh, because we're in hockey and, and we're kind of in a bubble of sorts where we see the same players and coaches and staff day in and day out. We travel together and all that sort of stuff. But when you can be in a position to meet all these these folks, uh, you know, that's what's that's what's really neat to me. And I, I suppose that that was the experience in Las Vegas for you, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it was. We met people all across. You meet people all throughout life, though, and all these things you do, oh, yeah. you know, and whether it's just everyday people doing their job or or military or you name it we, we get a, we're really fortunate and some of the opportunities we get to do um, are, are things that wouldn't be available to the general public and there's a lot of times where I tell teammates like listen guys this is special you know yeah. what we're doing is special these opportunities are very special take advantage of them right. but be very very grateful for them because you never know when you'll get them and I'll tell you a quick story and and it's um, another October 1st related story because on the night of the shooting, October 1st of 2017, I was walking home from our last preseason game. It was a Sunday afternoon, a five o'clock start. We had a post-game radio show outside the arena. So I'm walking home and I was going into a restaurant, picking up some food. When I walked in, there was a group of folks sitting outside having a good time. When I walked out, all of a sudden they had stopped laughing and having fun. I could see a look on their faces and they were looking south. At the time I didn't know it, but they were looking towards Mandalay Bay and I heard one of them say sniper. And as I walked home, I'm thinking, what what, what could be going on? And, and I didn't see anything on Twitter because I happened to have my phone open to social media. Let me see if I can find the Las Vegas Metro Police scanner. And I pulled it up on my phone and, and I listened to it and that's how I learned about everything that was going on. The rest of that night is another story for another time, but here's why I mention it. On the anniversary of October 1st this year, the Golden Knights had arranged a number of appearances and visits for the staff and the players, and I was with a group of, of a handful of players, including Derek England, by the way, who went to uh, a blood donation to um, Mandalay Bay itself. But one of our stops was at the dispatch center, the 911 dispatch center, where a lot of the phone calls on October 1st came in, and a lot of the dispatches, the communication out to the police officers were going out. And I listened to these people a year ago handle the chaos, and to hear what they were dealing with, but doing it with such professionalism, 
then to meet these people was incredibly touching. And here they all are. They're all wearing Golden Knights jerseys. They want to meet everybody. And they're just regular people. But they're the heroes to us. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Well said. And what they do has so much more gravity yeah. than what we do in the right. long run. Right. You know. and, and they were so appreciative of us taking just a little time to come visit them. But, uh, you know, that was among my first introductions to Las Vegas and how incredibly well they carried themselves in, in such a, a, a tragic, chaotic moment and how professional they were. Um, so it was very special for me to meet them. And as a communicator, as a professional broadcaster, um, you know, that's what the communication that matters the most. I mean, that's life-saving communication right there. Um, so that was a very special experience for me. And I, I think it was for those folks as well uh, to meet, uh, not, not necessarily me, but the Golden Knights players. Um, because in that moment a year ago, and even a year after, the emotion of it is uh, so hard to grasp. Um, the memory is so vivid that to find something to cheer about. And to heal and to bond over. And, it, it, it was just right. the perfect timing that the Golden Knights were there. So it, the, the team holds that special place in their hearts. And to have that connection is uh, among the most special things that I've had in my year in Las Vegas. It's, it's amazing what sports can do for cities, for yeah. people. Uh, on a lighter note, a lot of people don't know this about you, but you were an active teacher when it comes to broadcasting That's right. <laughs> and uh, I know that was a pretty quick segue yeah. but I'm I'm curious because you know the time we spent in Syracuse you were also you'd had your radio show that you did uh, with Brent Axe Media who will probably be really happy to, re- to hear this <laughs> someday um, the Axe Man but so you, you know you called the games for us you had the radio show but you also taught at Syracuse yeah and yeah. Uh, do you miss it oh sure yeah no it was it was neat for me to be back in Syracuse because I had been there as a student and then to be back, um, you know, the just and, and what brought me back to Syracuse was the hockey team, of course, the Syracuse Crunch, Tampa Bay Lightning affiliate. Uh, and I'd been with the Devils organization in the ECHL, the Trenton Devils, prior to that. But just like a player or a coach, you want to move up the ladder. And so I moved up from Trenton, New Jersey to Syracuse, New York. And uh, that's what brought me there. But then you find you are once again part of a particular community. And for me, that was, of course, the hockey world in Syracuse, but also the university, where I still knew a lot of people. And um, having kept in touch, um, you know, you follow the, the students who've come after you and the, the aspiring young broadcasters. So I had the opportunity to go up to the student radio station uh, at times and visit at WAER. And I had several of those students work with me as interns. And then, you know, you're in Syracuse for a couple of years. They ask you to do some stuff on TV. So I was broadcasting a handful of Syracuse University soccer games or lacrosse games or whatever else was up on campus. You and, had a really uh, nice setup. Oh, really. yeah. You know what I mean? Good. For the American Hockey League. Oh, it was fantastic. A lot of broadcasters are just yeah. broadcasters and they're, you know, That's it. they're selling some marketing packages <laughs> or something. And you were lucky that you yeah. could truly be a broadcaster sure. and do these yeah, things. Yeah, and, and it didn't happen right away. I mean, it, it took some time to, you know, you establish, a, 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 I, I suppose, a reputation, and that's what happened with the radio show. Um, the man who owns the radio station in Syracuse, his name is Ed Levine, a Syracuse University graduate and a recent inductee into the WAER Hall of Fame, I might add. But uh, Ed Levine's company is Galaxy Communications, and so they own several radio stations in Syracuse and in Utica, including the ESPN station, so, uh, yeah, Brent Axe is, uh, like, the sports talk guy in, in Syracuse. I didn't I, know he was such a personality until oh, I came yeah. to the team. My brother-in-law lives in Syracuse, and when he found out I was going on with Brent, he was like, 
yeah, man, everybody at work listens yes, to me. Like he's he's he, he's a big deal. Yeah, I'm like, I'm like, okay, yeah, I'm just going on the air with him. He's like, no, man, he's he he's a big deal. deal. People listen to Brent. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> when, when the when the Syracuse Crunch introduced me as the new broadcaster, they announced it on Brent's radio show, and then I was the guest, and then after me. Brent Axe interviewed Mike Emmerich about me. Like, that is wild, right? So uh, so my show was on right before Brent uh, in the afternoon. So I would and often do that show from the road. If the Crunch were in Toronto or Grand Rapids, I'd do the show from the booth. The show was called In the Booth, partly for that reason. So I'd do the show from 2 to 4, and Brent's show is from 4 to 6. And uh, the station carried, of course, Syracuse uh, Crunch hockey, but also... Uh, Syracuse football and Syracuse basketball on the family of stations there. So that that was great. And as you mentioned, then squeezing in some time to teach. And um, one of my great friends uh, and professors at Syracuse University at the Newhouse School, John Nicholson, was the guy who uh, was overseeing the Newhouse Sports Media Center, which is not a physical center, but the program that encapsulates the, the sports broadcasting, sports journalism tradition at Syracuse. And he had approached me about maybe um, formalizing my relationship with the students because I was working with the students, but not being paid for it. <laughs> you, did you eventually get the title of adjunct professor? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh sure. man, what a dream. Oh, isn't yeah, it? yeah. I got the stationery and everything to prove it. <laughs> uh, so so it, it was great, uh, you know, to teach some classes. I mean, tell me you got a paperweight. <laughs> I have, it doesn't have my name on it, but I do have a Syracuse University uh, glass paperweight, yes. I mean, that's when you've that's, reached the top of yeah. the mound. And I had an office with the key and everything. Uh, and and, and it, was, it was special to be walking those halls and to be interacting with those students because I remember when I was in their shoes and you hope to provide, um, you know, just a little bit of advice that maybe you might have needed when you were that age. And everybody's different. And to listen to those students and how much you think you are helping them, it turns out you're learning from them just as much. Uh, and I love that. And to see when a student gets it, when it clicks, uh, when they've made some kind of progress, when they get a job, um, you know, that's that's so rewarding. And, and I knew I would enjoy teaching in a classroom setting. Um, but I ended up enjoying it even more than I thought that I would. Um, so I, I do miss that. I did that for the last few years I was in Syracuse. But what I've done for a long time, Mike, and I think you know this too, but uh, when I was in college, I broadcast baseball games in the Cape Cod Baseball League, which has some of the very best college baseball players in the country. So I broadcast games for the Chatham A's. If you've seen Summer Catch with Jessica Biel and Freddie Prince Jr. That's uh, in my top five worst ever. <laughs> Terrible film, but uh, and most of it filmed on a soundstage or at a fake baseball field in the Carolinas. Very little was actually uh, shot. I'll on take the Sandlot all day oh, long. Oh yeah, yeah. Yep. But, but the point is that the, the team, Wendy Peppercorn and the crew, you know, that's <laughs> the team been in the film in it for years. Yeah. <laughs> right, the, squints in the boys. <laughs> and in both uh, films, the uh, broadcaster plays a uh, minor but pivotal role. I might add, and in Summer Catch, it was. Kurt Gowdy, the real Kurt Gowdy, playing himself, uh, former uh, ABC and Red Sox broadcaster, and, and here he is doing the play-by-play for the Cape Cod Baseball League. Well, that film came out in 2001. Long story short, my buddy and I, who I told you about in high school, broadcasting uh, you know, Ridgewood football and hockey and basketball, and, and I played baseball. I didn't get to broadcast baseball in high school. And here is the Cape League that, outside of Kurt Gowdy and Summer Catch, 
had no broadcasting. So we had pitched to the team this idea of broadcasting games and doing it on the internet so parents could listen uh, back home. And long story short, this was right after we were graduating high school and going into college. We were the team's first broadcasters, and then other teams in the league started doing it. And we would try to get our friends from college jobs with other teams in the league. My buddy Guy Benson, who now works at Fox News, he went to Northwestern University. And so he was doing the games with me for four years. Then he got an internship at the White House Communications Department. I had to find somebody to replace Guy and ultimately someone to replace me. And to make a long story short, I have been recruiting, hiring, and coaching student broadcasters in the Cape Cod Baseball League for a dozen years now. And you're uh, the czar of the Cape Cod League. At least the czar of broadcasting. Uh, and, and I love that because it's very different than a classroom because instead of, uh, you know, 16 students that you have, um, you know, their attention uh, for three hours, you know, uh, once a week, um, you, you, you deal with two students broadcasting games every day. Uh, and, and it's great. And, and to see how they've, you know, if you... Uh, You've seen, say, Scott Braun on MLB Network or NHL Network as a host. He's great. Uh, he's who I hired to replace me. Uh, <laughs> Look at the paper trail you're leaving. <laughs> yeah, so, so, and so many are doing great things, and some are still in baseball broadcasting for sure, and uh, many have gone into other areas of broadcast media, and it's wonderful. So I get to meet, um, it, uh, we get well over 100 applications every year, too, for a couple of play-by-play positions. And uh, to go through all those applicants. And it's word of mouth. I mean, we don't promote this. It's just word of mouth through the years. And it's this uh, clandestine <laughs> society. <laughs> and we get all these applications, and then I, I go through, and so many qualified candidates. But it, it boils down to, okay, are they talented enough? Are they experienced enough? Um, do they have the work ethic? But the, the question I ask myself is, do I want to work with this person? Uh, and that can be taken in two ways. One, if I were broadcasting the games, would I want to work with this person as my partner? And then secondly, uh, from a coach's standpoint, do I want to work with this person and help them become a better broadcaster? Uh, we're not taking in kids who are just trying this out. We're taking in young broadcasters who are on the precipice of becoming great. They're already very, very good. And this is the destination now for student broadcasters who want to take play-by-play to the next level. And of course, when I started, nobody was doing it. So that's very special. So in the summertime, for instance, in the last two years, like the Golden Knights playing until June 7th, Cape Cod Baseball League starts on June 12th. So I was on a plane back east a day or so after the Golden Knights Stanley Cup final run was over. The year before in Syracuse, Syracuse. That's right. you know, the Golden Knights uh, uh, and the Syracuse Crunch, the two teams getting all the way, but coming up short. But same thing. Well, we were in Grand Rapids. We flew back to Syracuse, and I was driving down to Cape Cod the next day. I mean, look at you. You, you're just, <laughs> you bring winning wherever you go, you well, know? I mean, yeah. you, go to the, you go to the Calder Cup Finals. You go to the Stanley Cup Finals. Yeah, Chad Amaze lost in the finals last summer, too, by the way. Yeah, his track record. I mean, there's no there's no wonder why people want to hire you. But. Yeah, sure. Well, I, I've yet to uh, be part of a championship in any sport at any level. I was uh, in college when Syracuse lacrosse won a national championship, but I wasn't broadcasting the games. I was still an underclassman, so I can't count that. They won the national basketball championship when I was still in high school. That obviously doesn't count. Lots of other times I've gotten to the finals, but the teams that I've covered have come up just short. 
Sorry. Well, you mentioned <laughs> you mentioned your show in the booth. Well, I don't have to mention coming up short. I did it two years in a row I, in the yes, Calder. <laughs> I know. I know. You mentioned your show in the booth. I got to know because we go to some really interesting barns in the American Hockey mm-hmm. League. And the mm-hmm. NHL, a little cushier, right? What's the worst barn in the American Hockey League to call a game oh, at? Oh, the worst is Providence. Not because the arena is bad. The arena is fantastic, but they forgot to, you know, provide a spot for broadcast so they just stick you up in the corner so, so i've actually the, heard this from a couple yeah, broadcasters yeah, the, jeff Mannix told me this yeah, too oh yeah. and, and and jeff is right on and as the portland pirates broadcaster he would have gone there many times there is no broadcast booth home team or away team at all in the corner uh there's just kind of a rounded counter that's it and there's and that's where like the scouts would sit so i remember one time uh GM, a former GM of Lightning, Steve Eiserman, was visiting uh, the Crunch, and he sat like four feet away from me. Here I'm doing the play-by-play of the game, and here's Steve Eiserman, and I know Steve, but here he's essentially my boss, right? He's the GM of the Lightning, and this is the Crunch, the, the minor league affiliate, and I'm doing the play-by-play of the game, and he's sitting right there. So, Steve, you want to put on a headset? Hop on on here. Yeah. So if you were to count, I, I did this once, and it's about 13 rows behind the glass, that's if I were to look straight out, I'd be looking at the 13th row behind one of the goals. So anything on the near side of the ice at the opposite end is out of view. You just That's cross brutal, your fingers. Man. I don't even bread. know how you could have pulled that yeah. off. Were there uh, some bad ones in the ECHL too when you were there? Uh, ECHL, yeah. Um, you know, it, it's not always about, you know, some of it is how far you set back. Um, you know, Johnstown. Well, we all know really you weren't cold. very far away when you're in somewhere like Adirondack and you're right on top of the That's place. Right. But. <laughs> and, some, and sometimes you're, you're too close, like the angle is too steep. Johnstown, Pennsylvania, where they filmed a lot of slap shot. You are hanging over the ice and the booth is, is so narrow that in, like you can't stand in the booth and see both ends. You have to lean out the window. And what happens is, especially if it's the third day of a three and three, you end up lean, standing. You can't sit. You lean against the wall to your left so you can see the play to your right. And then if the puck goes to the other end, you lean on the wall to your right so you can see the play down to your left. Some of those road trips, <laughs> some of those road trips in the cheeser, like in the coast down there. Yeah. Che- by the way, cheeser is a is a nickname for the ECHL. It's yeah. another long story in and of itself, but. <laughs> I mean, on a three and three like that, you might have been so tired from riding that chariot all around. Oh yeah. Did you ever have to clip in to make sure you wouldn't fall over the railing? <laughs> Was it almost like you had to have a safety line, like the guys at work, you know, high up on yeah, on the building skyscrapers and stuff that they have to put the carabiner on? Yeah, I don't think the headset would have held me in place. You're probably right. No, I never did, but maybe I should have. That'd be something to keep in your bag for future yeah. reference, maybe. Oh my gosh! Yeah, you know, just thinking in the ECHL, you know, I, in Trenton we had a great arena. That was—it's a shame that there's no longer a team there. Great arena, great press box, great view. Um, Dangerous walking distance, I've heard. Yeah, yeah. There was a Taco Bell in the parking lot, uh, but that was about as far as you would want to go on foot. Uh, but uh, you know, like. You know, Wheeling, West Virginia, it wasn't a bad place to call a game, except that the neutral zone was oddly narrow. Oh, and, a tiny ball. Yeah. And the, that uh, place is a time warp. Yeah. And, I right. played one game there, West stayed Bend overnight Arena. once, and it's, it's a Did time warp. Did you stay warp. at the McClure? 
It was the definitely downtown. <laughs> it was not one of the major chains, yeah. so it was likely the McClure. Yeah. I remember that the windows were capable of opening really far, like not up to code. Far. Like, <laughs> That's the McClure. Yeah. yeah. So they we're talking about the same place, but I also remember breakfast being like two fifty. Oh, and this was two thousand and five, right? Yeah. Like they were still stuck in in seventy six. Mm-hmm. I think. Did they have the uh, the goal horn that they pried off a steamship? It's oh, one yeah. of the loudest goal yeah, horns it, in hockey. It, it, was, it was obnoxious. Yeah. I didn't hear it very often. We won that game. Game in a shootout. Uh, uh, very good. I, yeah, very I remember good. that one. Nice. Yeah. I can remember distinctly a teammate of mine because we won three and three. We won two in a row in Toledo in the old building the night before, the two nights mm-hmm. previous, and then mm-hmm. bust over to Wheeling. And our owner was just so excited. He wanted the boys to go out and we're gonna get you a round of drinks and have fun. And we couldn't. We only found like the sports bar in Wheeling that was ten miles away or whatever. And we were the only people there. And I can remember peeling out the next morning because we were flying from Pittsburgh through somewhere back to Vegas and my teammate Scott Shenick and the bus is dead silent and we're rolling down the road and I hear Shenick just scream out thanks for the worst time ever wheeling (laughs) 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 we got out of there but that broke the tension man It, it was a trip man like those three games in that area and yeah, it was funny because uh, one year, because Johnstown moved to South Carolina, and what happened was Wheeling started playing a handful of games in Johnstown. So we ended up playing Wheeling more often in Johnstown than we had played Johnstown in Johnston the, uh, the year circus, before. Man, like, you know, Johnstown we, was a heck of a town. We, we've seen some things in the minors, haven't we? <laughs> sure. Oh I mean, it, it's got to be great for you, though, to be in the NHL now. I mean, after mm. you talk about players, but it's true for anybody that's doing broadcasting front office grinding in the minors that's a real thing yeah like and and you had a really nice setup in syracuse to be able to do those other things Mm. but you're still on the bus you're still dealing with that and syracuse was great too because of its location it's one of the reasons why the tampa bay lightning wanted to put the affiliate there having won a championship with the norfolk admirals had that incredible run in 2012 and then they moved to syracuse the reason was they weren't having as many practice days they were spending too much time on a bus traveling from norfolk all over the Northeast. I did two tours in Norfolk. Yeah. I know all about it. Yeah. I, and I love that city. Oh, it's fantastic. I, I absolutely love visiting love there. Yeah. But that's the drawback. And if the American League, now more than ever, is about developing players, you need more time on the ice and less time in hotel rooms. Our closest place was Hershey, and that was five. And then it, Charlotte, Charlotte came in, and that's another five. Yeah, yeah it's just, yeah. it was an outpost. So yeah. for Syracuse, you've got Rochester's an hour and change. Utica's less than an hour. Binghamton was uh, an hour. You know, Wilkes-Barre's just about two hours, and, and on and on. So, so often you're in your own bed, which means more time on the ice to practice and less having to um, to heal up the body. So for me, yeah, Syracuse was great. But, you know, the bus rides in Trenton to uh, Duluth, Georgia, and uh, Kalamazoo, Michigan, I mean, those those were rough. And I couldn't help but, but think of that in January when a writer for The Athletic, whose name escapes my memory, embedded himself with a Brampton Beast. Did you read this story? I read it. And... Yep. Uh, I know a couple of guys that were on that Brampton team. They gave them the full taste. They they did. And I, there were some parts I took a little bit of exception to because I found it was being slightly demeaning to it, but it really did capture yeah. a lot of what really happened. Right. And 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 uh, and I, and I I know what you mean when you say that, but as I'm reading the story about the the perils of traveling on a bus and I was involved in a bus crash, not the bad one that the Albany River Rats had that year. Um, and certainly nothing that compares to what we saw in Humboldt last year. No one lost their lives in this particular crash. No one was even seriously hurt, but uh, it was on the way back from Johnstown, as a matter of fact, on my birthday, February 20th, uh, 2010. 
anyway, uh, the, the thought as I'm reading the story and the author is describing the scene on the bus, the smells coming from the microwave and the bathroom right next to each other. Well, that yeah, the microwave like is really butt. not what you're worried about. Right. That's not the smell you're worried about. No, but 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 the smells, like the, they say, smell is what's attached to your memory, right? So as I'm reading that, I know exactly where the microwave and the restroom were on our bus, and and it it does it takes you right back there. So I could see this bus um, in my mind because I had lived on this sleeper bus, right? It's we never really had sleeper buses in Syracuse. We were having all these short rides. Yeah, I had it in Norfolk and I had it in Las Vegas, though. Yeah. And that... in Peoria. We had one in Peoria we called the Time Machine. <laughs> this thing was like converted something. Yeah. It, it was the biggest Frankenstein mobile in a death trap. Yeah. Go on. But the yeah. the sleeper buses are different because there are compartments and, you know, there are bunks and card tables and all kinds of stuff because you're on this thing for a long, long period of time. And uh, anyhow... I, uh, and I and I have to say the the Devil's Organization did treat us very well. We stayed in good hotels, and um, all of that was really as good as you might have expected in the ECHL. I know that we had it better than some other clubs, but um, you know it, it was hard. And as the broadcaster, you know you're at the bottom of the totem pole. You know, so there's only one equipment guy. There's one trainer. And they might need some help unloading the equipment when you pull into Wheeling at 3 a.m. We drop the players off at the hotel, and then the equipment guy. The trainer and the broadcaster go to the rink whoa, and load the gear. Whoa, whoa, whoa! This is the point where I this is this the is, devil's this, this is the point where I wish I had a record scratch. Yeah, the players mm-hmm. weren't touching their gear in the coast. Well, yeah, yeah. My goodness. Okay. Well, I tell you what, you probably got a lot of respect for unpacking the guys' gear, being the radio yeah. guy. No, I. I mean, I, we, most teams still in the American League right. and the ECHL, you unpack your gear. That's what yeah. you do, and that's one yeah. of the perks when you get to the big time. Is Toss it in the bag and get it out of there. Right. It's that's and it was that's and a I, big perk. And I, and it it probably wasn't every time, right? It, and it was you know when you're you've got games of back to back days. You've been on the bus a long time, and you know some you know, the players need to sleep, uh, and somebody's got to unpack the sweaty jerseys and everything. And especially, I, I say Wheeling because we wouldn't stay in downtown Wheeling. We'd stay in Ohio, so we'd have to we drop the players off, and the the rink from the hotel was like half an hour away. I digress. Uh, but the point is that even on the bus, you know, I didn't always have my own bunk. Right? Sometimes you're sleeping on the floor. and That's and, real. Yeah. yeah. So, you're sleeping on yoga mats. Right. You're sleeping on anything you can find. Yeah. And, and, and so, and, I'm, and I, as I say, I'm reading this story. It came out last January. And I'm reading this story sitting on a charter airplane with the Vegas Golden Knights flying from one city to another. And you just had to make the choice between lobster ravioli or fillet mignon. You took the words out of my mouth. But probably filet mignon if you were pronouncing it. <laughs> that is the hardest choice of the day. And that, Isn't that unbelievable? Right. And so like, I, you're treated so well. Right. And so unbelievable. I'm, I'm sitting there and I couldn't help but laugh. Uh, at the irony of, of the situation. And, while, the, and really almost the absurdity of it. Yeah. yeah. While at the same time, and I, and I say this seriously, uh, the National Hockey League is, is a wonderful place, but it's not as fraternal as the American Hockey League or the ECHL. And so some of the closest relationships I have with, with players or staff, whomever that I've worked with, come from the beginning of my broadcasting career in the ECHL and so to think about those guys and what y'all went through together uh, and how in the NHL it's not quite the same it's it's more corporate it's more professional and it's it's not as fraternal so 
I, I'm reading this and I'm, and I'm thinking to myself, as hard as it was, I loved those days. And I still do. And I think about those days fondly and I wouldn't trade it away at all as, as much as I wouldn't want to still be there. <laughs> well, and that dynamic extends to the players, too. We have that same thing where yeah. there's guys who will be grinding in the coast until they're 35 or 6 because oh, you know yeah. what? They love it. Yeah. And I, I can think of guys like that. But I think the player aspect of Sam it, Sam Fatorik, we were talking about the Fatorics. How long did Sam play? A long time. Until his 40s, right? Yeah, yeah. So I'm thinking, too, about how the players all, usually in the ECHL cities, you usually live in the same apartment complex. Yeah, right. And right. you're young. You know, there's not many married guys. If right. somebody has a kid, that's really strange. There may be one or two of the old guys that have been there a long time that are selling cars in the summer or rocking hockey camps in the summer mm-hmm. in that city or whatever, you know. Yeah, in Trenton, there were, I mean, maybe a couple of guys were married, but nobody had kids. Right, and, and so... everybody lived in the same complex. I mean, yeah. when we were in Vegas, we'd just, we'd get back and sit by the pool until mid-November. Right. Every weekend was a party. It was fun. We we were, some of the most memorable times I have were because the teams were so close. And right. it wasn't just, you know, it was players, front office, girlfriends, you name it. Everybody was close right. because... We were all in it together, and mm-hmm. there wasn't this huge pressure or anything. Like, we were just having fun. And you're 100% right. Like, those times are are really awesome. They're fun to look back on. And, yeah, you really appreciate things when you're in the NHL, and it's special, and it's a privilege, and you get all these amazing things. But you don't have to smell your neighbor's <laughs> farts for 10 hours. <laughs> and it's the grossest thing to ever imagine right now. But when you look back on it after all these years, all you can do is laugh and go, I can't believe I did that, but it was also some of the funniest times of my life. Oh, for sure. And as you know, being from New Jersey, I'm a diehard Bruce Springsteen fan. So the line from Rosalita, someday we'll look back on this and it'll all seem funny. And uh, and it remains to be true. Yeah. Well, on that note, Dan, I can't tell you how much fun I've had. Not only one, getting face-to-face with the Sicilian soundbite <laughs> once again, but getting to share your story because... I find everybody that's uh, it's been around this game for a while has a good one, and yours is certainly excellent. So thanks so much for joining me. Oh, thank you, Mike. It's wonderful to be on this side of the microphone. I don't remember how many interviews you and I have done through the years, but uh, it's, uh, it's a welcome uh, juxtaposition for you to ask me the questions rather than me asking you for a change. Well, you beat me in the vocabulary <laughs> column on this one, so thanks again, Dan. Thanks, that was a blast. Mike. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.